Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 182, The Russian Civil War, Part 1, The Belligerents, The Whites. Last time we covered the reign of Tsar Paul. Today we change directions entirely and start discussing one of the most catastrophic events in world history, the Russian Civil War. Before we dive into the events leading up to the war, I think it would be helpful to get to know the commanders and leaders of the many sides. Note how I said many sides. I do this because quite often it's claimed that the fight was just between the red and the white armies, but that's not entirely true. There were multiple factions. Also, the whites were not one cohesive group. They had pro and anti-monarchist sides amongst others, and this was to play a major part in their downfall. Others who would play very significant roles were the Czechoslovak Legion and the Black Army, a powerful anarchist contingent with an estimated strength of over 3 million men, led by the charismatic Nestor Machno. Let's begin by naming the main characters for the Red Army. We begin with the overall leader of the Bolsheviks, Vladimir Lenin. Now, we know enough about him, I've covered them quite a bit, and the next two men. Leon Trotsky and Joseph Stalin, so we're going to bypass their biographies. The next four are those who we will discuss. They include Jukums Visitas, Sergei Kamenev, Mikhail Tukhachevsky, and Mikhail Frunz. On the white side, we have Alexander Kolchak, Lavra Kornilov, Anton Denikin, Pyotr Rangel, Mikhail Alexiev, Nikolai Yudenich, and Evgeny Miller. Finally, for the Black Army, we've got Nestor Machno, and I'm going to kind of cover him next time when I cover the Reds, because they tended to be allied for most of the Civil War. So let's start with the White Army leaders, beginning with Alexander Kolchak. Born to a minor noble family on November 16, 1874 in St. Petersburg, he was to become a very polarizing figure during the Civil War. His father was a military man with the artillery and had fought in the Crimean War. Alexander himself went into the Navy, graduating from the Naval Cadet Corps, where he joined the 8th Naval Battalion. He then joined the Russian Polar Expedition of Edward Toll in 1900 as a hydrologist. His polar escapades, which included two trips into the deep Arctic, earned him the nickname Kolchak the Polar. Next off, he fought, off, fought in the Russo-Japanese War, initially as an officer of the cruiser Askold and then as commander of the destroyer Serdity. After these assignments, he was given command of a coastal artillery battery. With the war lost, he was captured and served four months as a prisoner in Nagasaki. Due to his performance in the Russo-Japanese War, Kolchak was promoted to lieutenant commander. He helped oversee the rebuild of the Russian Navy, which, for all intents and purposes, was destroyed in the 1905 war. His prowess in this program earned him the promotion to a vice admiral in 1916 during World War I, where he became the commander of the Baltic Sea Fleet and performed admirably. He was the youngest man to be appointed to the position, and as Orlando Figes puts it in his book, A People's Tragedy, quote, at only 41, he was young enough to be the son of most of the other field commanders. 
After he was dismissed as a commander post and his commander post the Feb, after the February uh, 1917 revolution, he returned to the renamed city of Petrograd to meet with the provisional government. Kolchak took a hard line in his views on how to revive the Russian military. He believed in discipline and the restoration of capital punishment. In conservative circles, he became their darling and the man they wanted to create a form of dictatorship. Because of this and the fear of his accepting the position, Alexander Kerensky ordered him out of the country and off to the United States. General Budberg described Kolchak this way, according, again, to Feiges, quote, He is undoubtedly neurotic, quick to lose his temper, and very stormy. He's a pure idealist, slavishly devoted to a sense of duty and the idea of serving Russia, of saving her from red oppression. Thanks to this idea, he can be made to do anything. He has no personal interests, no more proper, and in this respect is crystal pure. He has no idea of the hard realities of life, and lives by illusions and received ideas. He has no plans of his own, no system, no will. He's like soft wax from which his advisors and intimates can fashion whatever they like. It is here that we leave Kolchak until we get into the Civil War itself. Next up is Anton Denikin, who is one of the few people we will be talking about these two episodes that would survive the Civil War as well as World War II, dying at the age of 74 in Ann Arbor, Michigan in 1947. Born in the city of Lokalik, which is now in Poland, but on December 16, 1872, was part of the Russian Empire. His father was born as a serf and was recruited into the military to do 25 years of service. After his father retired in 1869, the family was to live on a small military pension, leaving them on the edge of poverty. He believed deeply in the Russian Orthodox Church as well as the Russian monarchy, so much so that he enrolled in the Kiev Junker School, which was a military college. Trying to get into the General Staff Academy, his grades were simply not good enough. Still, Denikin was a good fighting commander, so much so that by the onset of the World War I, he was Chief of Staff of the Kiev Military District. During the war, the troops he commanded fought with honor and bravery, but he was frustrated at the lack of supplies, as he states from his memoirs. Quote, I shall never forget the tragedy of 1915. We had neither cartridges nor shells. We fought pitched battles and made grueling marches. We were exhausted, both physically and mentally. From initial hopes, we were plunged into the depths of despair. The German artillery roared without cease, literally blowing away rows of our trenches with all who were in them. We barely replied at all, for we had nothing to reply with. Our totally exhausted regiments were beating off assault after assault with little more than bayonets. Blood flowed endlessly. Our ranks were growing thinner and thinner. Graveyards grew by the day. What a depressing commentary. To think that the Russian people went from this to the Civil War is so tragic. Denikin, though, was a devout anti-Semite, 
which shall come into play during the Civil War, with his men being involved in a number of massacres against Jews. Next up is Lavra Kornilov, a military intelligence officer who is best known for his role in the Kornilov affair, a supposed coup that would help inadvertently arm the Bolsheviks and bring them into power in November of 1917, precipitating the Civil War. Born in Astaman, Kazakhstan, then in the Russian Empire, on October 18th, excuse me, it was August 18th, 1870, there is much controversy and conflicting reports as to his heritage. Some say he was adopted. Some say he was born of Don Cossack heritage. Others, Kyrgyz ancestry. Whatever the background, he enrolled in military school in Omsk in 1885 and gradually moved up in rank over the years. Here's how Phyges describes him, quote, Small and agile, with a closely shaven head, Mongol mustache, and little mousy eyes, Kornilov came from the family of Siberian Cossacks. He fought admirably in the Russo-Japanese War and was ordered, awarded the Order of St. George for Bravery. After the war, he was a military attaché in China for four years. When World War I broke out, he became commander of the 48th Infantry Division and by 1915 became a major general, but was captured by the Austrians in April of that year. Within a few months, though, he escaped the prisoner of war camp and made it back to Russia, where he was given command of the Petrograd Military District in March of 1917, after the abdication of Tsar Nicholas II. I will leave him here, as it is after this point his role in the Bolshevik Revolution, and then the Russian Civil War begins. So, who's next? Ah, yes, Pyotr Wrangel. Pyotr Nikolaevich Wrangel was born in what is present-day Lithuania on August 27, 1878, to a family that was part of the Baltic German nobility. One of his most notable physical attributes was his height of 6 foot 6 inches, or close to 2 meters. He became a commissioned reserve officer in 1902, but left his commission to work on special missions for the Governor General of Irkutsk. When the Russo-Japanese War began, he re-enlisted and fought well. He was then promoted to become a lieutenant and a member of the 55th Finnish Dragoon Regiment. Seeing some talent, he was accepted to the Nicholas Imperial General Staff Academy. During World War I, he fought with extreme bravery, and by 1917, he became a major general. Wrangel commanded a number of different regiments, distinguishing himself and his men with skill. When it was apparent that the war was ending, he left the military, but was arrested at the end of 1917 by the Bolsheviks. He was released the following year and headed first to Kiev and then to the anti-Bolshevik volunteer army at Ekaterinodor, where we will leave him for now. The next three men were minor players, but will come up in our discussions. Mikhail Alexiev, Nikolai Yudinich, and Evgeny Miller. Let's go to Alexiev first. Mikhail Vasilievich Alexiev was born in Vyazma, Smolensk, on November 3, 1857, to a family where his father was an army captain. He went the standard route in military service, graduating from the Moscow Infantry School in 1876, followed by his service in the Russo-Turkish War 
of 1877-78. By May of 1883, he was promoted to captain. From here, he headed to the Nicholas General Staff Academy, where he became a professor of military history for six years. During the Russo-Japanese War, he served as quartermaster general of the Russian Third Manchurian Army. At the onset of World War I, Alexeyev became the chief of staff of the Southwestern Front. In 1915, when Tsar Nicholas II took over the war effort as supreme commander, Alexeyev became the chief of staff of the general headquarters known as Stavka until March of 1917, where he made many of the most important decisions of the war due to the Tsar's total ignorance of military matters. His leadership of the war effort has often been called into question as he ordered a number of questionable movements. And we're going to drop him off right here. Next up is Nikolai Nikolaevich Yudinich, who was born on July 30, 1862 in Moscow. His father was a minor court official, but Nikolai was seen to have had exceptional skills as he moved from the Ellen Alexandrovsky Military College to the General Staff Academy, the years 1881 through 1887. By 1902, he was given command of the 18th Infantry Regiment, which he continued to do through the Russo-Japanese War, where he was wounded in the arm and neck at two different battles. His war effort afforded him a number of promotions until his rise to the Chief of Staff of the Russian Caucasus Army. Here, during World War I, he led his army to a number of victories against the Ottoman Empire. So successful was he that he was awarded the honor of Order of St. George, second degree, and he was the last man to achieve this honor. Yudinich's disagreements with the provisional government, led by Alexander Kerensky, led to his forced resignation. After the Bolsheviks took power, he fled to Finland in January of 1919. By then, he had become quite obese, weighing upwards of 215 or 250 pounds, or about 113 kilograms. This is where we leave him until later. Last of the commanders is Yevgeny Ludvik Karlovich Miller, a name that rings of obviously numerous nationalities. He was born in Latvia to a Baltic German noble family. As with many of the other commanders of the White Army, Miller graduated from the General Staff Academy, but while the others served in combat, he was a military attaché assigned to Rome, The Hague, and Brussels. During World War I, he became a lieutenant general as the head of the 5th Russian Army. While considered the least important of the white generals, he may have been the most competent, according to Evan Maudsley in his book, The Russian Civil War. When the Russian Revolution came about, he fled to the north to the port city of Archangelsk, where he was appointed, and he appointed himself actually as Governor General of Northern Russia. And this is where we drop him off. Now that you've met the commanders of the White Army, join me next time when we cover the leaders and commanders of the opposing side, the Red and Black Army. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. But before I go, I want to tell you about an interview I did with fellow podcasters Eric Fogg and Xander Snyder of the Reconsider podcast, where they take an in-depth look at political issues. You can find them at the usual podcatcher sites or look them up at reconsider.com. 
My interview is about Russian history and its implications on today's geopolitical situation, and it should be out somewhere around mid-February of 2017. On top of that, I've been asked to be interviewed on the Conspiranormal podcast in mid-February. Seems like people with a knowledge of Russian history are all the rage. Who would have known? Well, anyway, now, as always, Das Vidanya и спасибо большое.